Good morning. You will turn with me to Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. Please hear the word of God this morning. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Thus says the Lord God. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would open our hearts, open our eyes and ears to hear you and to store up the riches, the treasures of Scripture in our hearts and let us live them. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. Our sermon text this morning comes from the greatest sermon ever preached among men by the greatest expositor of truth in the history of the world. The Sermon on the Mount is the longest discourse ever recorded in Scripture from our Lord Jesus. So you may ask yourself, What important topic would Jesus discuss in the longest discourse recorded in Scripture? There are so many great truths of Scripture, so many great doctrines worthy of a long discourse. What would the Lord Jesus spend his time preaching on? It was on the practice and conduct of those who would truly follow him. The message of Jesus in this long discourse focuses on how his followers would live in this world and interact with those around them. It was at this time that Jesus, after being baptized by John the Baptist, began his earthly ministry to proclaim the kingdom of God and that it was imminent and that it was here. And as he moved throughout Galilee, he began to call men to himself as his disciples. He found Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting nets into the sea. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they did. And as he continued to travel throughout the the region, he saw James and John, the sons of Zebedee, in a boat with their father. And he called out to them, as he did to the others, to come, and immediately they came to him. They left their boats, they left their father, to become disciples of Jesus. And in fact, many at this time began to follow him, began to travel around with him. As Jesus went through this region of Galilee, 
preaching in synagogues and proclaiming the, the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease among those who were sick. The news about him continued to spread throughout the region. He was being known throughout the region, and people were flocking to him. And they began to follow him more and more to hear this great teaching of, of this man who could heal the blind, heal the sick. And they would flock to him just to catch a glimpse of his miraculous acts or to hear this great proclamation of the kingdom of God which is at hand. And it's in the midst of this that Jesus ascended a mountain and he sat down to deliver the greatest sermon ever preached. The Sermon on the Mount largely focuses on the character and the lifestyle of those who would truly follow him. The Beatitudes emphasize the, the character of those who are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The message of the kingdom is for you if you are the poor in spirit. The preaching of the kingdom of heaven is to the poor in spirit, those who, are, who recognize their need for a savior. And it is to those who are impoverished of heart that belong to the kingdom. This was his message. This was his sermon. And it's within this context that we find our scripture passage this morning. Jesus says to all who follow him, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt becomes tasteless, how can it be salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, a city set upon a hill, a city that cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all those in the house. And he says to them, let your light shine among men in such a way that they will see your good works and glorify God in heaven. See, this really is to say something about the character of those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And last week was the message of the coming Savior and that through him we can be saved. We can have peace with God. And this week is more about the character of those who who have been saved, and who have peace with God. True believers are salt and light. Those who follow Jesus are salt and light in this world. They are to conduct themselves in a particular way, not to be saved, but because we have been saved, because we have been born of the Spirit. It is because of this that we are salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. And if that's the case, which it is, it would be rather important for us to understand how we are to be salt and how we are to be light in the world. So beginning in verse 13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. Now, when we think of salt in our day, we mostly view it as a, as a spice. 
When you go to a restaurant or, or even at home, everyone has salt and pepper shakers that enhance the flavors of food. And Americans especially put salt on everything. In the south, in our neck of the woods, more people order salt with a side of food. That is how my family is. But salt is used to, to enhance or to, to bring out the flavor of whatever you add to it. However, historically, salt has been used as a preservative. Before electricity and, and the invention of the refrigerator, people would use salt to preserve their food. And I remember my dad telling me stories of when he was young. He was born in 1955. And he's from the, the mountains of southwest Virginia. He was raised there with my grandmother, my grandfather, and their seven kids. And they were so incredibly poor. It's just a, a poor area. And they didn't have electricity, which means they didn't have heat or appliances. And he didn't have this until he was roughly six years old in 1961, which isn't that long ago in, in the, the span of time when we think of time. And the area that he lived in had very little job opportunities. So in order for them to survive, they mostly raised their food in a garden. And they had a rather large garden. They milked their own cows. And they kept that milk from spoiling by putting it in jugs. And then they would tie the jugs to the side of the creek bed. And they would put the jugs in the creek. And the, the cold water would run and would keep their milk cold and keep it from spoiling. And they mostly grew up on soup beans and cornbread, and they often had pork from pigs that they slaughtered themselves. They were very self-sufficient. They had to be. That's all they had. And apparently, I didn't know this until yesterday, or the day before yesterday, that their Sunday dinners would often consist of groundhogs, which is quite shocking to me. <laughs> I assure you that I will not be having groundhog today. And if you come to my house, it will not be prepared. But that's what they would have. They lived off the land. And they didn't have appliances like we do today. But since they, they had no, no way of eating all the pork that they would have from, from their pigs, they would have to preserve it for an extended length of time. And Dad told me that they had these old smokehouses and within these smokehouses, they had rows of tables, and they, they would line those tables with pork. And then they would have to go to the local store and buy these massive bags of salt, these 25-pound 25 25 bags of salt, and just salt the whole thing in order to preserve it. And that salt would keep the, the pork from spoiling for months until they were ready to eat it. And when adding salt to meat or to other types of food intended to be preserved, the, the salt dries up the water in the food. And without that salt, the food would spoil overnight, leaving it rank and only fit for garbage. Now imagine that. Without the salt, the meat would spoil instantly. But with the salt, it could last for months and months and months. And really, the good thing about it, it, it was wasn't very expensive. They could, it was something they could actually afford. And it was something so cheap that was so impactful to them 
that it, it really solidified their, their way of life. That something so small was so intrinsic, so important to their survival. And I think that the preserving nature of salt and the way that it, it, it enhances or enriches food are good metaphors for how we ought to be as Christians. Jesus says to his disciples then and to us today that we are the salt of the earth. And we are the salt both individually and as a church. Corrupt doctrine always produces corrupt lifestyles. Corrupt doctrine, corrupt lifestyles. It's always the way it happens. However, godly doctrine produces godly lifestyles. What we have heard and believed in the gospel should be manifest in our lives if we are Christians. It must be manifest in our lives if we are Christians. You know, I really dislike the phrase, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Because we ought to use words to proclaim the gospel. But nevertheless, what we believe must be manifest in our lives in a way that's obvious that we are of another flock or of another fold. And it's through this manner of life that we are the salt of the earth. One of the most damaging theologies to the church and to societies across the globe of the past 100 years is dispensationalism. Now that's true for many reasons, but specifically in relation to this passage, it's dispensational eschatology that's been so damaging. Central to dispensational eschatology is what I would call escapism. According to this view, this doctrine, since Christ's reign isn't here and it isn't now, since he is king in a, a future time, not king now, the church will be raptured out of this world as the world continues to grow more and more wicked, more and more corrupt. All these things have been detrimental to the church. Therefore, if, if dispensationalism is true, what truly is there for us to do on this earth? Why the call for salt and light if we are to hide in caves? What's the point? This view really is the old phrase, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. That is escapism. And that is good dispensationalism, but it is lousy Bible. It is not the truth. Christ calls his followers to be salt and to be light. And the metaphor used by Jesus here implies that just as, as salt preserves and enhances, we too are to preserve and, en and enhance the society in which we live and the lives of those around us that we are actively working as Christians to hinder the corruptions in this world, and that we are to have a positive impact on the world around us. We are not to hunker down and hide in caves, but we are to speak out into society the gospel, proclaim the message of the Savior, and to proclaim, thus says the Lord. 
This is what the Lord says. This is the gospel. This is God's law. You must know these things and you must proclaim these things. This really is the way of the Christian. Holy living that manifests in every area to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I think a, a good example of this comes from the 19th chapter of Acts and also the, the final chapter in the book of Ephesians. The city of Ephesus was quite a sight. It was complete rank of, of heresies, of, of paganism. And this is largely due to its, its location within the Roman Empire. Ephesus was considered in its day the, the gateway of the east. It was a city perfect for commercial trade and travel. Many people went through Ephesus uh, because of its location, because, because of its importance in the Roman Empire. Thus all manner of men and women traveled through the city, many choosing to live there for its many benefits. But it's because Ephesus is so central and so many flocked to it, each with their own pagan beliefs, that the city became sort of this melting pot of paganism and idolatry. That's what it had become known for. It was also in Ephesus that one of the, the ancient seven wonders of the world stood, which was the Temple of Artemis, which was erected for worship of the fertility goddess. So this really was a troubled city with many, many pagan notions. So by the time Paul visits Ephesus, he is already known in the area. The Ephesians have already heard of of Paul and heard of his message. To use the, the language in uh, Acts 19 of Demetrius the silversmith who created and sold silver items of Diana to the pagans, he said that Paul had persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are, which are made with hands. See, these people had already known of the message of Paul Demetrius already knew that Paul was proclaiming the gospel and he was on his way to Ephesus. And he already knew that his bottom line was going to be in danger. What if Diana is no longer worshipped? What if people don't come to the temple of Artemis? What would that mean to this city which is a hot spot of pagan worship? What would that mean to his bottom line who sold these Idols, if no one is worshiping, if no one is uh, acting in idolatry, who's going to buy these idols? So he, he kind of riles up everyone around him. And then a riot ensues, and it goes on for who knows how long because of Paul's presence and proclamation of the very gospel that saved him. And as he got closer to the town with his companions, that hostility continued to increase. So much so that the text says that the people seized Paul's companions and wanted to make a charge against them for this, this message of reconciliation, this message of one true God. And then one of the men, one of Paul's traveling companions, was singled out to make a defense among the people. And scripture says for two hours, two hours, 
the rioters shouted with one voice, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So you have Paul's traveling companion standing up to make a defense, and for two hours straight, these rioters stand right in front of him and scream in his face, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now, no doubt this would be very discouraging. So what did Paul do? Did Paul say, well, okay, this isn't going to work. I'm going to go to a cave somewhere. I'm going to hunker down, and this will all blow over. One day when Christ is king, when Christ returns, it will all be okay. No, he, he ministered to the church in Ephesus for a total of almost three years. He did not flee to the mountains, and he did not pervert his message. He did not pervert the gospel. The gospel remained the gospel. He did not flee. He stood there. He stood his ground. He was salt. He fought corruption with the word of God. And it is always striking to me that later he writes to Timothy, who ministered in Ephesus after Paul departed, and he borrowed the very same words of the rioters that he experienced when he first traveled to Ephesus. 1 Timothy 3.16, listen to this. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. The rioter said, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And Paul writes later, great is the mystery of godliness. He used their own language against them. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up to glory. This was Paul's message. Great is the mystery of godliness into a pagan society that hated him and hated the gospel. He didn't say great is Diana of the Ephesians, but great is the mystery of godliness. That is Jesus. Paul proclaimed in this this center of paganism, great is Jesus. This is the great one, not the false idols. It is Christ who is the great one. Great is he. And you know, he said that unashamed. And he said that without flinching. For the one who had paid for his sins was worth proclaiming unashamedly. He said it right in the midst of hostility. And Paul ends his chapter, his letter to the church in Ephesians by exhorting them to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Those in Ephesians were to put on the, the full armor of God so that the, they could withstand and stand firm against the wickedness that was around them. This is not the language of escapism. It is the language of antithesis and spiritual warfare. They were not to run and not to hide, but they were be, to be sought to fight back the corruptions of the earth. They were to be equipped with the belt of truth and the, the breastplate of righteousness, the boots of peace, the, the helm of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith. The audience, again, was in the midst of one of the most pagan cities in the east. And they were placed there to be salt 
and light to such a wicked generation. To fend off the the forces of darkness with the word of God, which leads to regeneration, faith and repentance, and holy living. That's what they were called to do. In the same way, we too are called to be salt in the midst of wickedness. And you notice that this isn't an imperative. He doesn't say, you must be salt. What does he say? He's not commanding that you are to be salt. He says that if you are his disciple, if you have been born of him, if you are of his fold, you are salt. Not you must be. This is a character-defining distinction. You are salt. This isn't something that you just wake up to be one morning. This isn't something that you tighten your belt and you lace up your bootstraps and you're like, this morning I will be salt. This is who you are if you are a Christian. You are salt. You are salt and you, you know something of this antithesis between the flock of God and the unbelieving world around you. Therefore, he asks this rhetorical question in verse 13. But if salt has become tasteless, how could it ever be salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the feet of men. What if we, as the salt of the earth, forsake our very purpose to push back on the corruptions of this world or in our society? What if we run and huddle in our caves and no longer proclaim the gospel in its fullness and speaking into every area of life? Well, without salt, things spoil. Societies spoil. Sin increases. Godliness diminishes. When the gospel goes unproclaimed to the lost, There is no regeneration because the Spirit uses the preaching of the cross to convert unbelievers. When there is no law of God proclaimed to those around us, men do not see their need for a Savior or know how to live in this world. One commentator put it like this. The meaning of the text is this. If that Christianity on which the health of the world depends does in any age, region, or individual exist only in name, or if it contains not those saving elements for want of which the world languishes, what use is it? What use is it? We cannot be Christians in name only. We can't do it. We cannot take upon ourselves the label of Christian without taking upon Christ and what he has called us to be and to do. So this rhetorical question can only be answered in one way. If salt loses its saltiness, if it loses its its taste, if if it loses its effectiveness, it cannot be salty again. Christians professing Christians who are not changed by the gospel are Christians in name only. If salt were to lose its ability 
to preserve or enhance. It loses its effectiveness. It doesn't do anything. And how does salt lose its effectiveness and worth? Particularly during the, the time of Jesus in the Middle East, salt would often get mixed with sand or other minerals around it, which would dilute its effectiveness. Because of all these other minerals and all these other compounds mixed with the salt, the salt could not do what salt does. It couldn't, it couldn't uh, produce anything. It couldn't, it couldn't preserve anything. It couldn't enhance anything. But in the same way, when Christians attempt to mix Christianity with the world, Christianity is always lost. And you've not preserved or enhanced anything. When the gospel is lost, there is no preservation. When we desire to look and act as those who have not been born of Christ, what are we really demonstrating to the world? That there is no difference between us. When we try to mix, we only show that there is no difference between us. So what use is there for an unbeliever to want what we have if we're just like them? What we profess to be true doesn't actually impact our lives or make any substantial or even noticeable difference to the ones around us when this happens. And Peter warns us in 1 Peter 14 through 16, he says, as obedient children, so this isn't to be saved, but this is as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts in which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. You are to be holy, and in your behavior be holy, because as it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He already said, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is what it means to be the salt of the earth. But you are also called to be light, salt and light. Looking at verses 14 through 16, Jesus says to those who follow after him, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are within the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Here Jesus again is saying, you are the light of the world. This is who you are if you have been born of him. It is because you have been born of him that you are the light of the world. Well, this obviously implies that at one time you were not the light of the world, that you were darkness. So let us fail not to remember that there was a need for light to be imparted to us at one time, we must have light imparted to us before we can be light for anything. And we cannot expect light to come from us if it is not first lit within us. Again, to use Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he writes to those, again, in a very pagan nation, to not synchronize with them, syncretize with them, 
but to be set apart, to be wholly different from those around them, to be light in a very dark place. And he writes in Ephesians 5, 7 through 10, Therefore do not be partakers with them, that is with the, the pagan world that was around them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness of truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. You are the light of the world, meant to look more and more like your Savior, who is described by the Apostle John as the light of men. That is the type of light you ought to be. And Jesus, as the light of men, shone brightly in a very, very dark place. And we too, as children of light, must shine in the darkest darkness and in the darkest of places. So what does light do? If we are to be light, what does light do? I can think of two things. First, light exposes and expels darkness. See, light is a revealer. It shows what is really there, what is behind the, the curtain. It's like walking into a, a very dark room and you can't see anything, which is incredibly dangerous if you have little kids and they haven't picked up their toys. You fumble over to the light switch. You know, you're stumbling and you're fumbling. You're trying to find this, this light switch, trying not to break your ankle the whole time. And, and once you flip it on, the light comes on, there's no more darkness, and you can see everything. Everything is seen and everything is exposed. Everything is brought to light. You can see the hazards that were in your way, and you can see the room as it isn't veiled or covered by darkness anymore. So too is the world and those around us when we are conformed to the image of Christ instead of the image of the world. The darkness can only see that it's dark when the light switch is on. You flip the light switch on, the darkness scatters. It's this reason that Christians are hated by those who love iniquity. John says in his gospel, everyone who does evil hates the light. Therefore, it makes sense that those who burn brightest are usually the most severely hated because the light reveals darkness in men. Those who do evil hate the light because it gives them a sense of their darkness. Those who are evil hate because the light exposes the deeds and alerts them of their wickedness. Spurgeon says of this that even as Christ's life judged upon the men of this age, so does the faith of Christians expose the evils of unbelief. And the holiness of believers reveals the wickedness of sin. Our light also reproves the deeds of darkness and condemns them. So by being light, you expose the darkness in others. So it goes to reason that if you are not light, you are not exposing darkness. 
and the necessity of being light. It is by our very manner of living as Christians that we continue to expose the darkness of men. I'm sure you all have been in a situation where maybe you're in a group of unbelievers and they, they start joking about something that really isn't very funny because it's clothed in wickedness. And I'll tell you that your participation in that will either show the unbeliever that you are just like him or that you are wholly different. When you don't participate, the unbeliever gets a sense of their sin. It exposes darkness. When you live as a Christian, it will expose darkness. Well, secondly, light is like a a beacon that lights the path to the source. If you follow the sun's rays, you will be led to the sun. And our, our text describes us as true Christians, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Now, many of you know that I am from Castlewood, Virginia. Castlewood really isn't a town. It's kind of this small community built on the side of a road. There isn't a whole lot that happens in Castlewood. And when I was younger, I would often complain of that fact. It's like, there's nothing to do here. But as I get older, I tend to prefer not a whole lot happening anymore. Nevertheless, I remember when when I was young, almost every weekend, my parents and I would get in the car and we would drive up to the Tri-Cities. We would drive to Bristol or Kingsport or Johnson City to do our shopping or to, to partake in whatever is going on up here in the big city. It often felt like the Clampets going to California. But one thing about Castlewood is that after the sun sets, there's just nothing. It's just darkness. It's, it's in the country. There's nothing to do. I mean, you could drive on the road and not see another car for an hour. But on those trips with my parents, I would, I would sit in the back of the car and there would be darkness, and I would see the moon shining through the car. And that's all there really was. That was the only light. But as we kept getting closer and closer to the city, more, we'd see more street lights. There'd be more, more lamps. There'd be more light. We'd see traffic lights. We'd see more houses and more businesses lit up. And I would always get very excited because I knew that we were close to the source of this light. We were close to the big city of Kingsport. (laughs) And the the light continued to get brighter and brighter the closer you got to the city. And it was always a, a happy, joyous occasion. But in a very similar manner, we are light bearers on this earth. We bear testimony of the gospel to those who are in darkness in our speech and in our holy living It's by our words and our actions that people know of the Savior. It is by proclaiming the need of repentance to a very dark world. It is by saying, thus says the Lord. This is the Lord's word. Hear it. We are a city. But we're not just any city. We're a city that can't be hidden. A city that's on a hill 
gives great imagery of a beacon, of, of a great city with blinding lights set up on top of a hill, bidding all come and see. Jesus says, you are a city on a hill. And he also says, people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to the whole house. If you think about it, do you see how silly that sounds? Not of the Lord's words, but the, the implications of what he's saying. For a man who has light in utter darkness, to place it somewhere where it cannot shine and others cannot see, no one can see him, no one can see what's going on, and the light is of no benefit. How silly does that really sound? Jesus says, you are the light of the world, that you are saved to glorify him, to love him, to obey him, and to make much of him in a world that is in darkness. And you are to do so, so that the light of his goodness and justice is made manifest to the nations, leading those to repentance and faith. That is who you are. It is not what you aspire to be. If you have been called, if you have been born of God, if you are of his fold, of his flock, you are salt and light. That's who you are. So I want to conclude with the same exhortation of our Lord Jesus in verse 16. See, verses 13 and 15 are his examples, and verse 16 is his conclusion. He said to those who followed him, and listen to this greatest sermon ever preached. And he says to us today, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That is what you're called to do. Be salt and be light to a wicked generation. Let what you have learned from Christ in his word be manifest in every single area of your life. Let it actually have an impact. We're not closet Christians. We are the called out ones for a purpose. And that purpose is to be salt and light. The Bible teaches that Christ is conquering now by the power of his gospel. The great commission that he gave to his disciples isn't something that may happen, but it is happening because he is the king. It is happening. It isn't hindered. By the power of the gospel, eyes are opened. Hearts are made new. People are awakened. And I'm so thankful that we get to be a small part of that by being salt and light. If you are fed up with the corruptions of society, especially as they grow around us, be Christians. Be salt and light. One of my favorite hymns to sing is Joy to the World, which we're going to sing here in just a minute. I love this hymn because it is a, a hymn of triumph, just outright triumph. And I hate that we only sing it usually in the, well, the last month. I would sing it probably every week. 
But it, it really speaks of this kingship of Christ over the world now. And it speaks of how this kingship of Christ is a blessing to the nations. That by his life and death and resurrection and by the gospel, Christ is a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And in that hymn, it says that he rules the world. He rules currently the world with what? Truth and grace. And he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Those are beautiful things. And this is the blessing of Christ to the nations. And in verse 3, the writer of the hymn, Isaac Watts, says, No more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found, Christ's blessings will flow. Well, how far is the curse found? Everywhere, right? The curse is a complete and total curse. It was the downcast of the whole creation. The fall was a complete fall, and the corruption of this earth is a complete corruption, and it touches everything. Yet the blessings of Christ extends as far as the curse is found. It is conquering. It isn't something that's going to happen. Christ is king. He is conquering. And he uses his people, all of them, to that end. Salt and light, that is what you are if you're a Christian. If you are born again, you are salt and light. Your speech and your life will either preserve or further corrupt. Think about that. No neutrality. By your life, you will either preserve or corrupt. And you will corrupt by being corrupt yourself or possibly even more dangerous by being silent. There are no non-participants. If you are a Christian, you are salt and light. There are no middlemen in Christianity. Christ did not call us to hide our lights under a basket or to be non-effective, to be useless. He did not call us to blend in with the world around us, but to be set apart so that we can be salt and light to a people who are desperately in need. He calls us to live in this world for a very, very short while. And while here, you're to manifest the greatness and love of the Savior to those in peril around you. So I'd urge you, don't lose your tastefulness and don't hide your light. Be a true ambassador for Christ. Make known your light. Make known the gospel. Continue to work and to push back the corruptions of this earth for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have saved us and that you have called us out of darkness and into light for your purposes. We thank you for 
all of your grace and your mercy toward us. And we pray that you would help us to be salt and light, help us to preserve and enhance uh, the culture around us and each other's lives in all aspects, in all areas of life, in all spheres. Help us to be...